Okay, um, we're going to get going and let people filter in. Um, I want to begin this morning, though, with my own uh, personal visual illustration um, to, to demonstrate. Listen, this, this, this conversation um, within our little world, when I say our little world, the, the evangelical reformed world, um, this conversation has the potential to be the most divisive, I guess you could say. Um, that's why I love efforts like Together for the Gospel and the Gospel Coalition that tries to unite together um, the, the new Calvinist movement, which would be kind of there's the, the, the Reformed Baptist movement and then, and then our movements. That really brings those two together because it's really important that in this conversation we not lose sight of um, our brothers and sisters um, who, who view this differently and that we hold our positions Yes, with conviction, but also um, with humility. As a demonstration of that, come here. So this is, and this just happened today, randomly. All right, so this is my, this is my best friend. Would you, call, would you call me your best friend? Yes, I would. Okay. <laughs> this is Chris Lawrence. Chris and I did college together. Um, we, were, we were at Murray State together. We lived together for three years. Uh, he discipled me. And um, has always kind of been that friend to me, one of my best friends in the world. We're in each other's wedding, stuff like that. And, um, and Chris gets almost everything in the Bible right, except he's wrong on baptism. This is, this is my token Baptist friend. And uh, I love this man. This is the godliest man I know. Um, I would trust my kids with him. And, um, and he would not baptize my kids. And I would still, I would still trust. Well, I guess you would after they... I baptize them when I come to the Lord. Yes, yes. So... Um, so just as a demonstration that this, this, this conversation is done with humility and love, um, we have, how many times do you think we've talked about this? Several. Several times. And, uh, but, he, so here's how it happened. I just, I got up to preach this morning in the 8.30 and I looked down and there's just Chris Lawrence. <laughs> and uh, he just came out of nowhere to visit me. He was, he was in Louisville and, and drove down to be here this morning. Um, and I just think it's God's providence that you're here this morning. Um, with this... <laughs> One last time. I'm actually writing. So a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about, I'm, I'm currently uh, writing. I'm doing a little writing project. And the format that I'm using, which I found is a really good format from uh, a book, Letters to Young Calvinists, which is a great book that I can recommend to all of you. But anyway, in Letters to Young Calvinists, it's a really cool um, pedagogic tool, I guess you could say, where he just writes letters to a friend who he knows um, kind of disagrees with him on stuff. And he's just writing letters to that friend, and that turns into the book. So I'm writing letters to a Baptist, um, kind of giving you a lot of the same stuff that I'm talking about in here, and they're all addressed to him. He, he's the one I'm thinking of. He's the one I'm, I, I'm, I'm talking about. So, so this is Chris Lawrence, one of my good friends, shaped me as a man and um, a hardcore Baptist. He just said, I'm not smart enough to be a Presbyterian. And uh, so I'll, I'll, I, I... can't figure it out. He can't figure it out. All right. Hey, pray, pray for me. We'll do. Pray for me. Heavenly Father... Uh, we come to you, and just, it's just my heart is so encouraged right now just hearing Robert preach and what all is going on in this church. And Father, even though my best and dearest friend, we disagree on this topic, I just ask that your spirit uh, work through him and he communicate truth. And that uh, despite our differences on this issue, Father, we just ask that your son's name be glorified. Mm-hmm. And Father, we just pray that whether it be at Hardin Baptist Church or at Cakes Creek Presbyterian Church, that the Great Commission continue to be lived out. 
Father, I just uh, pray that you have your hand all over Robert. Continue to have him be a man of God. And let this church continue to grow in amazing ways, Father. Father, we love you and ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, bro. All right. That is the first time a lecture on infant baptism was opened in prayer by a Baptist. And uh, I love it. I love it. Okay, thanks, guys. All right. So, here's where we've been. Um, We have talked about the history and context of baptism. Um, And I, I think that's important. What I said the first week is I don't think it proves anything at all. Um, I don't, I don't have my Baptist, my, my baptism convictions from history, but I do think it weights the argument that, that indeed the church has always baptized children. And so I think we have to come up with a compelling reason why they they were wrong to do so. Um, and I, as I said, I don't think it's there. In fact, I think the opposite is true. And then last week, what I did is I talked about the mode of baptism And the reason why I started with the mode, there's two questions. If you remember, I said there's two questions when it comes to baptism. Um, To whom is baptism administered and how is baptism administered? I started with the second question. How is baptism administered last week, the mode? And there's reasons why I did that. You can go back and listen to that. We talked about the mode of baptism. And and I hopefully showed you at, at the very least that you can't make an exclusive claim that baptism is done by immersion alone, that that's the only valid form of baptism. All I was trying to show last week is that um, our form is, at least you could say, it's valid. Um, and so hopefully hopefully helps you there. This week we get into, I guess you could say, the more controversial one, which is why do we baptize infants? Why do we apply this sign to infants? I hope um, that I'm going to be able to get through um, kind of a, a foundational case for this this week. And then next week, I might follow that up with a few more thoughts. And then also what I'd like to do is, um, is, is kind of use next week because, because I, know that, um, I, know that, I know that there are questions, many questions that I'm not going to be able to get to. There's an N there. That's an N. H-A-M at T-C-P-C-A dot O-R-G. Um, if you have questions about this that you think would be good for me to address um, next week for everybody, that answer, everybody, you can email them here. I, I'm not going to guarantee that I'm going to be able to get to your question. Hopefully I'll be able to take some of the feedback and then, um, and then kind of put it all together and, and come up with some questions that I think um, will help everybody. Um, so email any questions you have there. I have some questions that I think t- typically come up after, after I kind of give a defense for this. There are always follow-up questions that I get, so I'll just already have some of those that I'll answer, um, and then hopefully get into some of yours um, next week. But, but, so I want to leave time next week to answer some questions, so hopefully I'll be able to get through all of this uh, this morning. Okay, let's, uh, let's begin. First, it needs to be said that you will not understand this. this, this I'm going to take five minutes to um, preface what I'm about to say. You will not understand our doctrine of baptism unless you understand our view of Scripture. If you don't have the same view of Scripture that we have, if you don't have the same hermeneutic, which is a way of interpreting Scripture, if you don't have that same as we do, then I fully admit you will not believe what we believe about baptism. Um, And so I just need to make sure you understand where we're coming from, how we view this book. Um, Because if you don't view it this way, the way we do, then I totally understand you're not going to agree with our position. 
Um, if you view this book with a dispensational uh, form of hermeneutics, um, then our, our scriptures, our, our view of baptism is not going to make sense because the New Testament, in the dispensational view of things, is, is truly disconnected from the Old. Um, I, I, this is a caricature of it. If you want to go and look at yourself, you can more. But basically in the 19th century, um, a man named Darby um, brought, brought up this new way of viewing, um, viewing Scripture. And this kind of goes back to my first week where we talked about culture and context, where I kind of said... We haven't always been weird, but we're kind of weird now because this is the culture we know. Well, that's the same thing with dispensationalism. Um, how many of you um, older ones here re- grew up reading a Schofield study Bible? Yeah, exactly. So, 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 okay, Schofield study Bible is what essentially created a culture of dispensationalism. The Schofield Bible is very dispensational. Um, and so that kind of created, so basically the Schofield Bible... Um, and, then, and then the Left Behind series, honestly, uh, Tim LaHaye and those guys, that's very dispensational, right? And so the Left Behind series and the Schofield Bible um, created a culture in evangelicalism where dispensationalism is the norm. But it's a very, very new thought, very new, as in early 19th century by a guy by the name of Darby that rejected more classical hermeneutic of Scripture. And, and the classical view is that, that, that the Scriptures are one story, a story of fulfillment and consummation, and you hear that from me all the time. It's in my preaching. You'll hear it this morning in my preaching. It's in everything we do. That's fundamental to what we believe. Um, he came up with an idea of essentially, and again, this is a caricature, but essentially two stories, um, two stories of Scripture, one for Israel and one for the church. Or uh, maybe a better way to say it is, is one story with a parenthesis in that story, which is the church. So you've got Israel... And all the promises and stuff given to Israel. And that story is still happening. But, but here where we are, there's a little parenthesis to the story of, of history. A mysterious thing that came out of nowhere that was not prophesied or talked about in the Old Testament. It was hidden. And then out comes the church. And then there's this phase. And then the church will be raptured up. The rapture is a very new concept. Um, even, uh, even newer than dispensationalism. This church will be raptured up out, off of the earth. And then there'll be tribulation, which will, which will bring this story that started here back to its consummation. Israel will believe in the Messiah and all that. So all the prophecies, all of the, um, all the prophetic literature and all that stuff, it's a very literalistic view of Scripture. The reason why it kind of came to be is because they took a very literalistic view of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And it wasn't, it wasn't all lining up perfectly. Um, so when you like read the Left Behind series, all of the pr- prophecy in there lines up perfect, like it actually literally is going to happen exactly like that. And so they didn't see the church as being the fulfillment of all that. They didn't see this age being the fulfillment of all that because, it, because of the way they viewed the prophets. So the way they accounted for it is that this is a special dispensation, another story that's going to go up to heaven, and this one on earth is going to continue on. If that's the way you view Bible, essentially it's two stories, Israel and church, with a deep disconnect between the Old and the New Testament outside of Revelation. A deep disconnect between the Old and the New Testament. Um, if you view it that way, you're not going to understand um, our, 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 our view of baptism. And the Baptist church got fueled by dispensationalism. Um, so when I was struggling through this in college, sat down with a pastor and I said, you know, here's, here's kind of what I'm thinking and, and I'm get, getting into these writings. And, and the first, first thing he said to me was this. And this is very telling. If you just had 
So this is the Old Testament. This isn't working. This is the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. Um, if you just had this, could you make your case for baptism? And I said, no, I can't. And he said, well, there you go. There you go. We're New Testament believers. And I, I, and I said to him, how can you say that? I mean, th- how can you say that you disconnect this from all of what God has done, from the entire story of Scripture, that this is one story? And, and he essentially, when it all came down to it, he said, I don't view it that way. So if you don't believe in a covenantal view of Scripture, that this is one story of fulfillment, then you're not going to get what we're trying to say here. Now, what's gotten the new Reformed Baptist movement in trouble is they do view it this way. So uh, you know, Piper and um, I don't I, I, who's in that movement um, in the Together for the Gospel guys, Moeller um, at Southern, guys like that, they do view it this way. They're covenantal through and through. They, they reject dispensationalism. They think it's a, it's, and dispensationalism is dying off in many ways. It, this, is, this is really becoming the norm, particularly in the evangelical church. But they view it this way, and so it's become, it's become very difficult. Um, they're, they're having to go and rethink classical arguments to try to figure out how to fit it into this covenantal view because it's tough after you hear what I have to say. We believe in covenant theology. What covenant theology says is that The story of Scripture is one story of creation, fall, that's all, Genesis 1 and 2 and then 3, and then redemption and then consummation. We believe all of that, this is creation, fall, this is redemption. We believe that's what we're in, one story. That fall happened, and and after the fall happened in Genesis 3.15, that famous verse that you know, in Genesis 3.15, God promises a Redeemer. He promises that he's going to put an end to, the, to, to what the fall has done. And we believe in Genesis 3.15 that God entered into what's called a covenant of grace with mankind. He did not punish. He did not eradicate man for their sin because of the fall. He did not destroy mankind. He entered into a covenant of grace, a covenant of promise that he is going to redeem what sin has laid waste. That started in Genesis 3.15. We believe the story of the Bible is God doing that is doing this, 315. And the successive covenants are, um, are, are growing our understanding of his redemption. So you got the Noahic covenant, Noah, um, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the uh, Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. All of these are growing, are expounding our understanding of God's redemption, culminating in the new covenant, which is, of course, Jesus, which is where we are. We think Jesus totally and fully fulfilled all of what was prophesied. We don't think that there's another, that there's another story um, that has yet to be fulfilled. We think Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And again, you're going to hear this from me in my preaching and in my teaching all day long. We think Jesus is the fullness, the fulfillment, that everything that was talked about in the Old Testament and, and God's people, we believe that is fulfilled in Jesus. And the mystery that happened, because what, it's, it's no doubt... What God said. God said, clear as day, that those who would be blessed, those who would receive his promises and his salvation, were the children of Abraham. And I believe that. I believe that totally. That the, the, the people of God that, that are saved, that are blessed of the Lord, are the children of Abraham. Okay? Here was the twist that nobody saw and that Jesus came and then Paul so articulated. 
The children, who are the children of Abraham? They are not the children, you want to answer, don't you? They are not the children of circumcision. They are not the children of flesh, the Jews, the, the, the physical people of Israel. Those aren't the true children of Israel. What the New Testament says is children of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham, not the circumcision of Abraham. Circumcision is of no value. The people who are children of Abraham are those who share the same faith as Abraham. So I think God, God is being faithful to his promise to Abraham. I think I'm a child of Abraham. I think Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Why do our kids sing that? They're not Jewish. Why are they singing that? Because we... Okay, so let's go to the Scriptures. Uh, the church is the fulfillment of the children of Abraham. Romans 2... I mean, and I could go... There's so many places. In our text this morning, in our passage this morning, where he has just lambasted the Pharisees, the, tr- the, the children of Abraham, and then he looks at a, a Gentile woman, and she's the, she turns at the end of the passage, she's the child of Abraham. He says, it's not right for me to feed the children and give this to dogs. And the twist was, oh, you're a true child of Abraham because you have the faith of Abraham. So uh, Romans 2, um, Romans and Galatians really, Paul really uh, says this very explicitly. For circumcision, 2.28, for circumcision indeed is of no value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision, his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and the circumcision breaks the law. For no one is a Jew. That, that, let's just start here. I, I, that needs a lot of explaining. Let's just start here. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That would be of the flesh, of the heritage of Abraham, the circumcision of Abraham. No one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, not the physical flesh and descendants of Abraham. Galatians. Um, you know, again, I'm just pulling verses, but there's so many you could turn to. You can research it on your own. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's not those who share the circumcision of Abraham. It's those who share the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is those who have the faith of Abraham who are sons of Abraham. Uh, Verse 29 of that same chapter. He sums it all up. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Jesus, then you are the offspring of Abraham. You are the heir. You are the inheritors of the promises given to Israel. And I could continue on, but I don't want to take the time to continue on. All I'm trying to show you is that this is one story, one story of fulfillment in Jesus and that the, the people of Christ are the fulfillment of Israel. Okay, now if that's the case, let's talk about... Remember I said in 3.15, God entered into a covenant of grace. 
none of these are working, so this is just for my benefit anyway. All right, God entered into a covenant of grace. When He formed a people to be the recipients of that covenant of grace, He marked them with a sign. The covenant has always had a sign and a seal. It always has. And what, what you need to see, we're going to start with the first time he instituted a sign of the covenant, and then we're going to continue on all the way through the New Testament. The first time it happened is Genesis 17, 9 through 11, the first time he came to that father, Abraham, to form a people of his own salvation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That works. All right. Genesis 17, 9 through 11, okay? I'm not going to take time to read the whole passage. Genesis 17, 9 through 11. This is the first time he forms for himself a people, Abraham. And the children of Abraham will be his people. We're the children of Abraham by faith. Genesis 17. All right, 9 through 11. Well, I guess. I think I'm covered. Okay. All right, 17. Um, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So he instituted a sign of the covenant of grace. And the sign before the Redeemer came was circumcision. Now why circumcision? Because I mean, when you think about it, what is the sign pointing to? What is the big thing? Genesis 3.15. That there will be a seed of this woman who will crush Satan. Who will redeem all things. Who will, who will undo the fall. So the sign of circumcision pointed to the coming seed. You, it, I mean, literally, physically, think, think about... I won't go into detail, but think about the sign. It points to the seed, the next generation. And it's sealed in blood. He wanted it to be bloody. He wanted the sign to be bloody, and he wanted it to be a part of the body that points towards the next generation and generation after generation that the Redeemer is coming. And so that's the first time he instituted a sign of the covenant. Now, the sign of the covenant has two purposes. Two purposes. It has a vertical purpose and it has a horizontal purpose. The vertical purpose is between man and God. And that's God's sign. And it actually should be that, not that. This is one of the biggest misconceptions of, of the sacraments is that it's us speaking to God when in fact it's God speaking to us. If the sacrament, in other words, baptism is us speaking to God, my personal declaration of faith, if it's that, then, then I suppose you could make a better case for uh, believer's baptism. But it's actually God speaking to us, which is a very, very important distinction. So the covenants have a vertical element of God's promise to us and it has a horizontal purpose. The vertical element here I just described is the coming of the Redeemer, that God, that, that God is going to bring a Redeemer... Um, who, will, who will fulfill this covenant of grace, who will fix the fall, um, who will... Who will um, it, it's a sign of the promises that God has for His people, the sign of the promises that come with the covenant that He's made with people. It's a sign of my covenant, namely God's salvation to His people. So there's that. 
then there's a horizontal purpose to the sign of the covenant. The horizontal purpose is to mark God's people, to set them apart. So the circumcision kind of sets... So when you have the world, he wanted Israel to be a nation unto himself, a holy nation unto himself that would reach all the other nations as you heard from me this morning. Israel was set apart from the rest of the nations by circumcision, by the sign of circumcision. In fact, it became, it became known as, when you read the Old Testament, they became known by this sign. It would say, who are these... So like when, he's talking to the Phil, when David's talking about Goliath, the Philistines, says, who is this uncircumcised man? Who is this uncircumcised man that defiles my God? So people outside the covenant started to be known as the uncircumcised, and people inside the covenant started to be known as the circumcised. So essentially what happens is the sign becomes a boundary marker between God's people and the rest of the world. There's a vertical element to the sign, and there's a horizontal element to the sign. That's going to be really important when we get to baptism, okay? All right, now... Baptism is replaced, baptism replaces circumcision, okay? Nobody debates that. The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was um, circumcision. The sign of the covenant in the New Testament is baptism, okay? Of course, the mode changes because we're no longer um, looking towards the Redeemer. The Redeemer has come, He's done His work, which is the washing of baptism, the Holy Spirit's um, baptism. In Jesus Christ, uniting us to Christ. So, uh, baptism replaces circumcision. Nobody debates that. But here's what's debated. Whether our children should still receive the sign of the covenant. Okay? In the Old Testament, you can't. the next verse where I stop, the next verse after that, God tells Abraham to give that sign of the covenant to his children. And that's how it was practiced for thousands of years of redemptive history. It was given to children. It was given to children. The sign of God's covenant was not just for those who had faith, but for their children in expectation of their faith. So, children were included. Nobody debates that. Here's the big argument. Here's the big debate of the church. With the coming of Jesus, does it so radically, fundamentally change the nature of the covenant that now children are excluded, whereas before they were included? And that's honestly... That's the biggest debate. Now, I must say this. Um, it's only debated, and we're going to get into the debate, but it's only, debated on, it's only debated on vertical terms. Should children be included in... <laughs> so I'm using the only ones that don't work. I get it. All right. There. The nice, strong arrow. It is only debated on vertical terms. Nobody debates it on horizontal terms. When you start speaking about... Remember, the sign has horizontal and vertical elements. When you start speaking about the horizontal nature, everybody, even Baptists, start to think, yeah, actually, I think my kids should be included. In other words, if you start saying, okay, the, 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 the sign of the covenant marks God's people. That's people. It's the boundary marker. It's their initiation right into God's people. When you start asking that question, the horizontal questions, should our children be included if that's it? then parents want their children included. Yeah, I want my children to be officially a part of the church. I don't want them as outsiders and strangers and aliens of God's people. That's crazy. Why would I want that? And where in the New Testament do I even see that? That's that's not happening in the New Testament, that now children are excluded from God's people, that they should not be marked as a part of the people of God. 
if baptism has a, and it does, if baptism has a horizontal element, um, I think that for a lot, and that's why Baptists do baby dedications, right? There's something inside of them that wants to set their child apart. To, 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 to say there's something different with my child. This is a child of the church. And so I think people want that, but here is where people, the vertical element of baptism is what is debated. Do our children, and here's why it's debated. Very simply put, baptism is viewed as a sign of faith. Okay? It is a sign and seal of faith. Why would I baptize a child who cannot yet comprehend or express faith? Why would I do that? It makes no sense. That child has no faith. Why would we give them the sign of faith? Now, listen, that's the vertical. They don't have a faith in Jesus. Why would we give them that sign yet? Okay, if I can show you, and I'm about to, if I can show you that circumcision was a sign of faith too, and that God had no problem with the sign of faith being given to children who could not yet express faith before, would you then have to be at least willing to admit that, well, God didn't have a problem for a long time. Maybe it's not a problem for children to receive the sign of faith. Let me show you that circumcision was not just a sign of the Redeemer to come and the covenant. Let me show you that circumcision was the sign of Old Testament Israel faith. Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The sign of that faith, that sounds just like, that sounds like just good old New Testament conversion. Believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What is the sign of his belief? What is the sign of faith that was credited to him as righteousness? It was circumcision. Romans 4. This verse really, really started changing me on my views. Because once I saw that circumcision was a sign of faith and that that sign of faith was given to children... I started thinking, well, why can't the baptism sign of faith be given to children? All right, Romans 4, 9 through 12. And now what he's doing is he's getting, well, I don't get the background here. Listen. For we say, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? I'm in verse 10. How was faith accredited to him as righteousness? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So he's asking, Paul's asking this, did Abraham believe in God and it was credited to him as righteousness before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So here's the picture. Abraham believed in God, and, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. That's just good old-fashioned Reformed theology. We are saved by faith, and that's what credits as righteousness. He believed in God as a sign of the righteousness by faith. He was then circumcised. That sounds like good old-fashioned believer's baptism to me. That's what's going on in the New Testament. It's a first generation of all these people who had not yet received the sign of the new covenant and they're believing in Jesus and they received the sign. Abraham believed and then he was baptized. He believed and then he was circumcised. And then right after that, God said, I want you to take the sign of your faith and I want you to give it to your children. Circumcision was a sign of the righteousness that we have by faith. Baptism is a sign of the righteousness that we have by faith. It's a sign of many more things, but one of the things it is is a sign of the circumcision is a sign of the righteousness we have by faith. 
God said, I want you to take the sign of faith and I want you to give it to children who cannot yet express faith. If that's the case, then all philosophical arguments are now off the table. Because, and the reason why I say that is because everybody comes to me with the exact same question. Why do you baptize children who cannot yet have faith? Why do you baptize children who cannot yet say they believe in Jesus? That, you're not allowed to ask that question anymore. Apparently, God's okay with it. He was okay with it for 2,000 years. Apparently, there's something different. There's something more going on here that God is very comfortable with the sign of faith being given to infants who cannot yet express their faith. All right. Here's what we have to do. we got to go to the New Testament, and we've got to see. Here, so here's what it is. We know God did it this way for thousands of years. We know children were included for thousands of years. The big question then comes, and this is why how you view Scripture is so important. The big question then comes, when we turn to the New Testament, do we have evidence that God wanted that to stop? Do we have any evidence that God wanted his people to no longer include their children in the covenant, in the sign of the covenant. I don't think we have any evidence. In fact, I see evidence that we should still do it. Let me first say this when we turn to the New Testament. The most significant argument against our practice is, in fact, our greatest argument for our practice. The most significant argument I hear from people is this. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where it says, Thus saith the Lord, baptize your children. And I would say, you're right. And I'll also say there's nowhere in the New Testament where it says, thus saith the Lord, don't baptize your children. The New Testament is very silent on this issue. To which people, well, of course, with a dispensational view, the silence means, okay, well, then what do we see? We see people believing and being baptized, which we see more than that. I'll get to that in a second, but let's do that. But I would say, if you have a covenantal view, the silence to me is deafening. This is what really got to me. You're right. The New Testament is silent on infants on whether they should, should or should not receive this sign. If that's the case, then we must continue doing what God has told us to do for thousands of years. Warfield put it like this. God established his people in the days of Abraham, and he put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out, therefore they are still members of his people, the church. It's very simple. God put them in, and we need to leave them there until he says, get them out. And nowhere does he says. The silence is even more deafening. The silence of the New Testament is even more deafening when you consider how Christianity came to be, which was, of course, a Jewish um, reformation. The biggest problem in the New Testament when you read Paul's writings is Paul's trying to pastor churches through the nuances of giving up Judaism in favor of Christianity. So you've got, you've got people who are saying, okay, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, but we still got to follow these dietary laws, right? I mean, we still got to do the circumcision thing, right? We still got to do these traditions and customs, right? You're telling us that we literally just believe in Jesus and all of that, the ceremonial laws of Israel, the judicial laws of Israel, they've all been abrogated in Christ, that, that we just, we don't do that and we don't expect new converts to start doing this? And Paul over and over and over again is saying, yes, yes, that's the case. In fact, in Acts 15... They had to have an entire council, an entire council in Acts 15. That's the, that's, that's the Jerusalem council Council that, that in Acts 15 to determine do Gentiles who believe in Jesus have to now start, do they have to be circumcised? And do they have to start abiding by our dietary restrictions that we've been looking at in Mark the past few weeks? 
They had to have an entire council to settle that debate. It was a huge deal that people could not understand. Okay? So the whole New Testament, particularly Paul's letters, are the, the, the awkwardness of transitioning from Judaism to Christianity and all of the implications of that. And Paul is constantly talking about that. And he's constantly saying, no, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the rules. It's grace in Jesus, faith in Jesus alone. Here's why I want you to see in all the debate. Not one time, not one time in the New Testament is there any debate that children are no longer a part of the covenant people. Do you understand how significant that is? Telling Jews for thousands of years who their children are included that now your children are excluded that that could be pulled off without even one sentence in a letter from Paul saying, hey, by the way, this is why your children no longer receive the sign of the covenant. You don't think there'd be one chapter in the letter to the Galatians where Judaism is just running wild. You don't think he'd write one chapter and say, hey, I know this is probably an issue for you. Here's why children are no longer included. There's no debate going on in the New Testament. Zero. It's silent. You're telling me the most beloved tradition of Israel would die without any debate. That people would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Our kids are no longer included. That's crazy. I mean, you think about the most beloved tradition of, of uh, what's, a, what's a tradition of the United States of America, Les? What's, our, what's a great tradition? Who's a, give me a tradition of the United States of America. The national anthem. Let's say that tomorrow the federal government said we no longer sing the national anthem before, before sports games. Do you think that would go quietly into the night? Do you think people would be okay with that? Now, we're a nation with a couple hundred years of tradition. You're telling me, and and by the way, let's say that, that, that our government said no longer, no more national anthem, and then a few thousand years later, people were studying our history, and, and you think that there would not be any talk about this, this big moment where they said no, no more national anthem, there's a lot of debate and all that stuff. You're telling me the most, the most beloved tradition of Israel went away without any talk without any command from God, without any discussion in the New Testament. I just, I cannot believe that. I cannot believe that God somehow, that the church somehow stopped doing this practice and there was no debate. There was no even command. In fact, that just settles the argument right now. There's no command to stop doing this. So we keep doing it unless God tells us to do it. But besides that, besides what I call the deafening silence, which I think is so profound, besides the deafening silence... I think it's being practiced in the New Testament. It's, here's what you need to understand about the New Testament. It's a first generation. This is the, we're reading the first generation who are believing and receiving the new sign. So everybody who believes, just like in Israel, when you believed in Yahweh, you were circumcised. In the same way, you have an entire first generation of Christians who are believing in Christ as Messiah and receiving the sign. So, of course, the pattern looks like it's only believe and then baptize. But we don't know what happened to the second generation. Actually, we do. We don't, but, but, but people think we don't know what happened to the second generation. What would happen to the next generation? Those people who do believe and receive the sign. Is that paradigmic? Just the believe and baptize, believe and baptize over and over again? Is that, is that the only way to do it? Or what were they doing with their children, those who believed and baptized? Um, I'll go to one example. Acts 16. This is great. Um, I'll read just two verses, 14 and 15. All right. Acts 16, 14 through 15. Um, This is an awesome story. Lydia, a woman named Lydia, 
um, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. That's a, that's a, um, it, it's a Jew. She's, 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 she's worshiping in the temple, the Gentile. The Lord opened, by the way, this is a great Calvinist verse too. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Our hearts are, are closed to the proclamation of the gospel unless God opens our heart. The Lord opened her heart, um, where was I? To pay attention to what Paul said. After she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, and then it goes on. She was baptized, and then her household as well. Now, what then, now I, I'll tell you what the Baptists say. They say, well, why are you assuming that that's their children? How come they didn't go there and evangelize that house, and then all of them believed? Okay, I mean, maybe that's a possibility. I don't know. But that sure sounds like Old Testament language to me. That sure sounds like the continuing practice of what was always done. She was baptized, she received the sign, and then her whole household is baptized. Maybe you could say that, that they went there and they evangelized their household and they believed, and that's why they all got baptized. Or it's just going on like it's always gone on. Here's what's compelling with the household baptisms. We don't know much detail about them. It says they, they're baptized in their whole household. We don't know much detail there, so maybe, maybe they're evangelized, maybe they want. But here's the thing. Here's what's compelling. Every time the person who believes and is baptized has a household, the household was baptized. Every time. People don't understand how prevalent the household baptisms are in the New Testament. Every time somebody believes and they have a household, they're baptized. Now, there's mass baptisms like, like, like Pentecost that we don't know about. But every time it goes into detail, the only people who does, it doesn't follow up with a household baptism are Jesus, um, who didn't really necessarily see, they see John's baptism, but obviously no kids, Paul, same thing, no children, and uh, Ethiopian eunuch, no children. So, there's three that were baptized, and it doesn't say their household. Every other time that somebody's baptized, it says their household as well. Now, if you want, it, it, perhaps, you know, the perhaps the Baptist is right, that all those people believed, and then they went to their household and shared the gospel, and everybody in the household believed too, and that's glorious, and I hope it happened that way. But we could also say maybe, maybe it's just going on like it's always gone on with these household baptisms. Um, and, and I would say this. There's a familiar vernacular to the New Testament. And, and, and people, people this, is very, this is very important. So if we're talking about that it was always done this way, and then we get to the New Testament, and we have to discern whether God wants us to continue doing that way or whether children are now out, we have to look at the la- If it's silent, which it is, which I think is a compelling argument for Presbyterians, Baptist thinks is a compelling argument for them. But if it's silent, which it is, then what we have to do is we have to get into the language of the New Testament and see if it talks in a covenantal way. If there's this familiar covenantal vernacular that has always been used, was always used in the Old Testament, are they speaking the same way about the covenant and so forth? And that's what I see all over the New Testament. Uh, Mark 10, 14. Here's what you have to... Here's what you have to you have to say, here's the people of God. You have to make the claim. And by the way, I'm going to make the claim and defend it next week. Um, we'll, look at, we'll look at what the Baptists say. But, but you have to say that, that here's the people of God. Baptism is the boundary marker. This is how we're identified. We are the baptized of God. That's, that's our boundary marker here. Here's the people of God. You have to make the claim that Jesus made a fundamental change and that Jesus wanted the children out. Okay. He, he no longer wants them to be a part of that. He only wants, the only people who receive the sign are those who supposedly believe in him, but there's a lot of uh, false baptisms in the Baptist church, as they admit. But regardless, um, children are now out. So what you have to do is you have to look at Jesus, and you have to see what kind of regard does Jesus have. 
And what's amazing is that it seems as though Jesus has a higher regard for children than the Old Testament. That it's not a less regard that he wants the children no longer included in his people, but that he actually has a higher regard. In fact, he says crazy things like Mark 10, 14, where the children come to him, and you know this verse. Um, they're, they're coming to, to be with him, and, he, and Jesus saw, they were trying to stop the children. Stay away from him. When Jesus saw it, he got indignant. Um, and he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such belongs the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to the children. Truly, I say, he gets even more scandalous. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. Not only does the kingdom belong to them, if you don't become like them, they're the model citizens of my kingdom. But the theology is that Jesus would say that children are now excluded from uh, the covenant of grace. Um, I got to go. I heard the bell. I got to go. But let me, let me finish my little tie right here about the vernacular of the New Testament. I'll skip that one. I'll skip that one. Um, uh, Acts 2, 238. When the initiation of the baptism thing happened, this promise is for you and your children. And then what's scandalous about the New Testament. And by the way, for those who are far off people, don't let this turn into a little enclave of you and your children like Israel did. This promise is for you and your children. That's Old Testament language. Be baptized, every one of you, for this promise is for you and your children. That's the Old Testament. And then he says, and also, by the way, don't forget those who are far off. How about this one? Uh, I'll, I'll end with this one. 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 14. Paul's talking about the household, New Testament households. He's talking about women um, who have believed and their husband has yet to believe and they're saying, should we get divorced? And Paul says, stay together. Here's why you should stay together. Listen to this language. Stay together. Why? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Don't get thrown off by holy as in moral holiness. This is, this is set apart. The word holy means set apart. They're set apart. This household is set apart. And here's how he knows that this household is set apart. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What do you do with that verse? What do you do with that verse if you, if you do not believe that children are to receive the sign of the covenant, that they are not apart? Stay together because your household has been set apart. And here's how I know your household is set apart. If your household wasn't set apart, your children would be unclean, which is just the language of being outside. Your children would be unclean. But as it is, your children are holy. John Holt, Charles Estes, Robert Owen are holy children. Set apart children. Not holy like, believe me, come to my house. They ain't holy like that. <laughs> holy as in set apart. They're not unclean. They're holy. They're set apart. And that's why we apply the sign of setting them apart to them. So I can go on and on about the language of the New Testament. All I'm saying is, the silence of the New Testament to me says, let's continue doing this. But even if you were to say, well, I don't know. Silence could mean that we stop doing this, which I don't know how you make that argument. Well, then you have to say, okay, well, how does the New Testament talk about children? How does the New Testament talk about families? What is the New Testament's view? And when I look at the New Testament, the language sounds very covenantal to me. Very much like children have always been looked upon. Our previous minister made everybody mad. Um, John Sartell, every time he baptized a baby, he'd say this. The sign of the covenant, uh, the sign of baptism is commanded by God in Scripture to be given to our children. Something like that. The, 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 the commandment to baptize our children is in Scripture. Anyway, he said something like that and it made everybody mad. 
And everybody's always coming to me. It's like, where is that commandment found? Where is that commandment found? Where does God say, baptize my children? And I would say, okay, let me change the language. The sign of the covenant given to our children is commanded by God in Scripture. Are you okay with that? And every person has to say yes. The sign of the covenant is commanded by God to give into children. The reason why John nuances is to make all you all mad and then you to think about it. But, but, but the sign of the covenant commanded by God to be given to our children. That's, nobody debates that. Now, and this is, I'm done here. We clearly have a command. We have a divine enactment requiring the sign of the covenant to be applied to our children. We have there, when people come to me and say, I want to thus saith the Lord, thou shalt baptize the children. This is what I say. The whole thing began with a thus saith the Lord. Apply the sign of the covenant to the children. My work is done. I'm, my work's done. Your work now is this. It falls upon you to show me a command that that is no longer binding. You ask for thus saith the Lord. I want to thus saith the Lord. Give me a thus saith the Lord that says thou shalt not do this. Because it was given and until somebody shows me in the Bible to stop doing that with my children, I'm not going to stop doing that with my children. It was given by God. The work then begins to show that God does, not, does no longer want the children to receive the sign of the covenant. And I think you will search your Bible in vain for that command because it's not there. And it's not there because I truly believe God does not want our children excluded. He wants our children to be identified as, along with, within his people, the church, they are set apart as children of the covenant. All right, um, we'll, we'll look at your questions. Email me, rcunningham at tcpca.org. Email me questions. I'll follow up with a no frequently asked questions that come from that. Um, but that's enough for you to chew on this week. Let me pray for us and, and we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you so much. And um, I know there's a lot. I pray that you would help us digest it well with wisdom and charity. Um, bless us now as we go to worship in Jesus' name. Amen.